again. I, I want Christianity, but not too much. Just enough to make me happy, but not enough that I get addicted. I don't want too much gospel that I begin to hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I learn to love my enemies, cherish self-denial and contemplate missionary service in an alien culture. I want enough gospel to make my children well behaved, but not so much that I feel my ambitions redirected or my giving too enlarged. Those are the opening words of Don Carson speaking on Philippians chapter 1 some years ago. The point is powerful. I want a a safe Christianity. I certainly don't want to overdose on Jesus. Not so that I actually lose my life to him. Now look, we're, we're unlikely to state it that boldly, but most, if not all, real Christians know the temptation to opt for a domesticated version of the gospel. One that gives as many blessings as possible but doesn't demand too much from me. We know that temptation, but I guess the real problem is not that we know the temptation, but that we're happy to to settle for it. By contrast, nothing could be further from the truth for the Apostle Paul. Don't mishear me, I'm not suggesting that the Apostle wasn't tempted to go for the easy option. He was as sinful as the next man. Indeed, he believed he was more sinful than the next man. He did, after all, describe himself as the chief of sinners. He knew the temptation to take the easy route. But he never settled on that. He was never happy with that, never satisfied to go down that line. And nothing demonstrates that more than these words at the end of Philippians chapter 1. Again, verse 21, Paul says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What did he mean by that? Well, look, as, look on to verse 22. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. If I carry on living, I'm going I'm to serve Christ. I'm going to work hard for him. Fruitful labour. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ. It would be fantastic to be with Jesus. That would be better by far. See, for Paul, if he lives, he will live a life sold out for Christ, with Jesus directing every decision of his life, with gospel proclamation front and centre, with Jesus being the very meaning and substance of life itself. He will work hard for Christ, labouring, verse 21 and 22, for Jesus. That's how he'll live, for Jesus. And because Jesus is everything to him, then to die, that'd be great. That'd be gain. For Paul, death brings just the wonderful thought of being with Jesus, the one whom he lives for, the one whom he loves. I've been really challenged by these words this week. I've read them before. I guess many of you who've been coming here for many years will have read them before as well. I've been really challenged by them and wondered how or whether I'm really converted. You see, for me to live is... Well, all sorts of things. Depends on what day of the week you ask me, really. For me, to live is my family or my ambitions. For me, to live is sport and England. Are they going to win today? Leisure, holidays, the weekend. And to die? Well, it really feels like gain to me, to die. Most of the time, see, this is the point, I don't long to be with Jesus. Sometimes in my very best moments, I do. That's one of the great things about coming here. Sometimes as we, as we start singing God's praises, I get caught up in it. I really want to be with him. 
But even in those moments when I do long to be with Christ, it's usually only because life is so hard now. And then I have a kind of uh, Star, Star Trek Christianity, you know, beam me up, Scotty. Or a game show Christianity, I'm a Christian, get me out of here. Paul was quite different. He had a longing to be with his Lord. For Paul, Christ was everything. While he lived in the body, he would serve Jesus. If he died, he would go to be with Jesus. It was win-win. And you see, that was why he was so thankful for the prayers of the Philippian Christians. I look at uh, verse 18, the second half of verse 18, where our section begins today. Yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers, talking to the Philippians, through your prayers and the help given by the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. It's amazing, this letter. Have you picked up some of the themes that we're beginning to see again and again? In verse 18, Paul is rejoicing. We've seen him rejoicing all the way through the letter. We've only got to to the last part of chapter 1. Here is Paul chained and in prison, yet full of joy. The beginning of the chapter, verses 4 and 5, we saw Paul rejoicing because the Philippians were partners in gospel ministry. Last time, at the end of uh, chapter 1 and the first part of verse 18, we saw Paul rejoice because Christ was being proclaimed. I don't mind how he's being proclaimed as long as he's being proclaimed. Philippians, you are gospel proclamation people. Uh, You are partners in in gospel. I love it. I rejoice in that. Other people are proclaiming the gospel. It doesn't matter what their motive is. I'm rejoicing that the gospel is being proclaimed. And now Paul Paul continues to rejoice in the second half of verse verse 18 because the the Philippians were praying for him and he knew, verse 19, that their prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit would turn out for his deliverance. He's full of joy. What does it mean? What does verse 19 mean? I think if we get hold of verse 19 and understand what it means that he will be delivered, that we will understand the whole thrust of this section. Let me tell you what it cannot mean, where he says uh, uh, it will turn out for my deliverance. Let me tell you what it cannot mean. Paul isn't rejoicing that their prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit will see him released from jail. To read verse 19 like that just doesn't make any sense. You see, it's nonsensical to read verse 19 as whatever happened to me, being put in, what what happened to me, that is being put in jail, will turn out for my deliverance, being released from prison. Doesn't make sense, does it? I've been put in jail so that I can be released from jail. No, that doesn't make sense. If you look down at the footnote in the NIV, you'll see the word deliverance could be translated salvation. Now again, we know that can't mean Paul's imprisonment has has resulted in him being eternally saved. He's not saved because he's been in prison for Christ. Now you see, the deliverance, the salvation Paul is talking about here is that he'll be delivered from a useless life. From a life that counts for nothing. Why do I come to that conclusion? Well you see, his deliverance is explained in the next verse. The Bible always tells you what the Bible means. You don't have to guess. Look at verse 20. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. See from verse 20, he's clearly not saying I'm going to be delivered from prison. He thinks he might die, life or death. But what he is saying is that he expects to have courage in whatever situation he's in, courage to stand for Christ, that Christ will be exalted whether he lives or dies. He believes that um, 
Even his going to prison will help him to have a life that matters. And a life that matters is a life that honours and exalts Christ. We saw last time in verses 12 and 13 how Paul's being in jail has served to advance the gospel. You see, this is a brilliant thought, isn't it? Being a Christian and being committed to gospel proclamation means that no part of my life, even the most difficult circumstances, even being put in prison as a Christian, no part of my life need be worthless, pointless and fruitless. Isn't that great? It's a brilliant thought because no one sets out in life wanting to achieve nothing out of the ordinary, do they? No one wants to live a mediocre life. No one wants on their inscription of their gravestone, here lies Paul Williams, he achieved nothing. I mean, you might think that's what's going to be on it, but nobody wants that. He was positively average, a very ordinary bloke. You want that on your gravestone? Well, you don't want Paul Williams on your gravestone, but you know what I'm saying. When on our deathbed we reflect on our lives, we don't want to look back on a life that was, well, I didn't achieve anything, do we? Some time ago I was speaking to someone uh, close to me, someone in the twilight years of their life, and they said this to me, I often look back on my life and wonder what I've achieved. It's a haunting thought to get to the end of your life and say, what's all that about? At age 47, I think often about the end of my life. You might think that's a bit odd. Those of you who are under 25... You'll think that's very odd. I know that for you, uh, death seems a long way off and I hope it is for you. You feel that you have the whole of your life ahead of you and without wanting to sound patronising and without wanting to sound like your dad, even though I'm old enough to be him, I didn't think much about death when I was 25 either. But let me tell you, life flies by. Ask the people in this sort of section of the congregation. (laughs) I don't know where the last 20 years have gone, do you? And as this close relative said to me, one minute it seems as if you have, your year, you have years and years ahead of you and the next you're looking back on a life that has just slipped by. If we don't use it well, we'll find ourselves looking back on life and wondering what we've achieved. But listen to this, you see, the wonderful thing for the Christian is that we need never feel that life was worthless, fruitless and pointless. Whatever our circumstances, even if we're like Paul, thrown into jail if we live our life for Christ, if he is everything, we will have lived a life worthwhile and fruitful. Isn't that a wonderful thought? That's what Paul wanted for himself and that's why he was so thankful for the prayers of the Philippians in verse 19. You see, he says, through their prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit, even being in jail would be used to live a life that counts, a life delivered from fruitlessness. I find verse 19 wonderfully encouraging. Uh, Two ways. It's an encouragement to pray. I've been encouraged by those in this congregation who are prayers. Just this week I've been encouraged. Um, Several people said to me, um, sort of from Wednesday on, how did the training day go? I've been praying for you. Now the only way they knew that I was going to speak at a training day was that they had been reading the prayer notes in the prayer diary, in the notice sheet. And they had prayed for me as I led a a training day for the diocese on evangelism. 
Well, let me say to those, I mean, I've spoken to one or two of you, let me say to those of you who've been praying for me, with your prayers, to take the words of verse 19, with your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit, pastors were encouraged to think more about evangelism. Thank you for praying. You've been involved in gospel proclamation by praying. I hope out of that, whole churches will be encouraged to have an evangelistic strategy. That's what we were thinking about as we met together. And individuals have been encouraged to get to know their Bibles better and to spend more time with unbelievers. Thank you for praying. With your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit. Do you see? It's verse 19. Prayer is a great way to make our life count because it's a great way to help others' lives count. Let me tell you about a couple of old ladies who I met 19 years ago when I was first ordained. They, uh, they lived together. Um, and I went round to visit them early one afternoon. I hadn't visited them before. I met them in church, but I hadn't visited them before. And I went round to visit them early one afternoon. And one of them opened the door and invited me in with the words, you're only just in time, five minutes later, and we wouldn't have been available. Well, she invited me in, and uh, there they both were. And, and then she explained why I could only stay for five minutes. They took me into the dining room and there on the dining room table they had laid out prayer letters from mission partners all over the world. It's strategically laid out on the dining room. And they went on to explain to me that every afternoon after they had their lunch and a little snooze, they would then pray for two hours. They prayed for mission partners and leaders in churches and friends that they knew who were involved in gospel ministry and they prayed for me as well. And so I can only stay five minutes because they were going to get on with the work of prayer and they didn't want the pastor getting in the way of that. (laughs) That's how to be delivered from a useless life. Even those of you who feel that your life is coming to the end and maybe, maybe you can't even uh, get out to do the things you used to be able to do. Maybe you're not even here and you're listening to this sermon um, on a a CD because you can't get to church. Pray. That's how to live a life being delivered from uselessness. See, that kind of use of an afternoon is so much more valuable than letting the afternoon slip by watching Doctors and Countdown or Deal or No Deal, isn't it? Prayer makes a difference. That's what Paul says in verse 19. So verse 19 is an encouragement to pray and it's a great expression of partnership, isn't it, prayer? How did Paul begin this letter? By thanking the Philippians for their partnership in the gospel. Now that happened in lots of ways. They were proclaimers. But here we see it. Wonderfully expressed in their prayer life. Paul prayed for them, verse 3 and verse 9. They prayed for him, verse 19. That's being partnered in the gospel, isn't it? And there's no question in Paul's mind their prayers were significant. Look at verse 19. I know that your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Christ will turn out for my deliverance, will mean that I don't lead a life that is useless. Their prayers, you see, were used to strengthen Paul, to stand unashamed, to be courageous for Christ. That's verse 20. I eagerly expect, you see, as a result of their praying and the help of the Spirit, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. See, verse 20 is Paul's ambition. That Christ would be, do you see the word there? It is the word exalted. The word actually is magnified. That Christ would be magnified. I've had lots of fun as a little boy with a magnifying glass. Lots of fun, especially on a hot day. 
a magnifying glass and the sun very hot. And not that you know anything about that up in Sheffield, but some places it gets hot. Sorry, that was a bit rude, wasn't it? I used to put ants under magnifying glasses because I wanted to see if they were bigger. I don't know what you lot used to do. Yes, sometimes they did explode, but I wanted to see what they looked like when they were bigger. It was hours of fun to see them bigger. It didn't make them any bigger. They were always the same size, but I could see them better. I could see their detail. A magnifying glass doesn't make things bigger, but it enables us to see things clearly if we can't see them. Paul's longing was that his life would exalt Christ, would magnify Christ. There's nothing that he could do or you and I can do to make Christ any bigger or more magnificent. He is magnificent. He's the creator of the universe. He is what life is all about. You and I can't make him more magnificent. We can't magnify him in that sense. But through our lives, we can be something of a magnifying glass for those who are far away from Christ those who can't see who Jesus is, our lives can magnify Christ to them. That's Paul's desire. And he believes that can happen, end of verse 20, whether he lives or dies. And of course, death was a very real possibility for the apostle. He was in chains, awaiting trial, we presume. I guess every morning Paul woke up considering that today could be his last day. Could be crucifixion. Could be being thrown to the lions or becoming a human torch. How would he react if that happened? Here's the thing. Here's the thing. For Paul, the most terrifying thought wasn't death. No, that would be gain. I don't mind going and being with Jesus. I love that idea. Here's the thing. For Paul, the most terrifying thought was the thought of facing death. He might deny Jesus, renounce his faith to escape death. That's why he was so grateful for the prayers of the Philippians in verse 20, you see, verse 19 and 20. He says at the end of verse 20, whether he dies or whether he lives, his desire is for Christ to be exalted. You'll know the name Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Uh, You'll know probably that he went to prison, to concentration camp Gulag as as an unbeliever. In prison he saw many fellow prisoners die. You know what made him become a Christian? He was amazed when he saw the way Christians died. That's why he became a Christian. They died differently. That's Christ exalted in death, you see. Christ exalted in the body. Let me um, tell you about a man called Peter O'Brien. He's the author of a number of commentaries um, and uh, books for Christians. Uh, one, a fine commentary on the book, book of Philippians. He spent 10 years in missionary service in India. Peter O'Brien became a Christian through his mum. His mum was converted because of a woman on her street who was chronically ill for many, many years. And Peter O'Brien's mum was so impressed by the way this lady handled her illness, always remaining positive about following Christ, speaking of Jesus and coping with this debilitating disease, she was so impressed that uh, she became a Christian, which in time led to Peter O'Brien's conversion. And so what came from that old lady's dignified, Christ-honouring life was ten years of missionary service in India and books that now help Bible teachers all over the world. That's verse 20, Christ exalted in the body. That old lady didn't know anything about what was going to happen, but she lived a faithful life, and her life 
has magnified Jesus to many people, even though she didn't know it. She'll know it now. She's in glory. Didn't know it at the time. And so Paul said in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's an amazing thing to be able to say, isn't it? It actually sounds reckless. It is in fact the only way to live a life guaranteed to live a life that isn't worthless. See, to live verse 21 means that even if I lose everything, I gain everything. It's what Jesus himself said in our first reading, Mark 8.35, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. You know the famous words of Jim Elliot? Jim Elliot was a Christian missionary who died while attempting to evangelise the Weadonai people in Ecuador. Jim Elliot said this, He is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's not foolish to lose your life in the service of Christ, says Jim Elliot, because no one can keep their life anyway. We're all going to die. He is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me in the gospel, says Jesus, will save it. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, as I read this verse, it makes me ask the question, how would I end that sentence? For me to live is... How do you end the sentence? For me to live is family, love, career, world travel, sex, sport, I don't know. What is it? Let me tell you this. If you and I complete the first part of the verse with anything other than Christ, we cannot say the second half of the verse. If for me to live is anything other than Christ, then to die is a disaster. Because death robs me of the very thing I'm investing my life in. If for me to live is anything other than Christ, when I die I've lost it. That is why death is so stupefyingly terrifying for everyone who isn't a Christian. And sadly for many who are. But if to live is Christ, then whatever the circumstances, I'm always the winner. Win, win, live or die. If I live, I live for Christ. If I die, I go to be with Christ. See, verse 21 sounds so reckless until we think about it and then we realise it's the most sensible way to live because we can't lose. And let me tell you this as we close. If you live this, if I live this, you and I will be irrepressible. What do you do with Christians who live like this? For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If you live like that, you can't be hushed up. No one can keep you quiet. I think of Polycarp, second century bishop of Smyrna. You know about Polycarp? He he was hauled up before the authorities for being a Christian. And the proconsul asked him whether he was was Polycarp. They'd been trying to catch him. They finally got him. You Polycarp? On his confessing that he was, the proconsul sought to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, have respect to thy old age and swear by the fortune of Caesar. Swear and I'll set you free. Reproach Christ. Polycarp declared, eighty and six years have I served him and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my saviour? And when the proconsul yet again pressed him and said, Swear by the fortune of Caesar, he answered, Since thou art vainly urgent that as thou sayest I should swear by the fortune of Caesar and pretendest not to know who and what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. 
And if you wish to learn what the doctrines of Christianity are, appoint me a day and thou shalt hear them. I love that. He's about to be killed for for, for being a Christian. And he says, I'm a Christian and I'll tell you the doctrines. I'll evangelise you if you like before you chop my head off. And the proconsul said to him, I have wild beasts at hand. To these will I cast thee, except thou repent. But he said, "Call, call them then, for we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt what is evil. But again the proconsul said to him, I will cause thee to be consumed by fire, seeing thou despisest the wild beast, if thou wilt not repent. But Polycarp said, Thou threatenest me with fire which burneth for an hour, and after a little is extinguished. But thou art art ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why tarriest thou? Bring forth what thou wilt. It's great, isn't it? See, you can't shut somebody up who is not fearful of death for, to me, to live his Christ and to die his gain. If you spare me, I'm going to keep speaking about Jesus and living for him. And if you kill me, I'm going to be with Jesus. That's great, because that's where I want to be. What do you do with Christians like that? You can't actually shut them up, can you? Wonderful. See, Paul was quite ready for death, quite happy to go and be with Jesus. That would be, in his words, better by far, end of verse 23. He was actually looking forward to it. Yet even as he says this, he shows his commitment to the gospel of Jesus in the next words. But, verse 24, it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Do you see what he says? I'd love to go and be with Jesus. But I think it's more important that I stay here and strengthen your faith and witness. So I'll do that and I'm happy to do that because that's serving Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I want Christianity but not too much. Just enough to make me happy but not enough that I get addicted. I don't want too much gospel that I begin to hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I learn to love my enemies, cherish self-denial and contemplate missionary service in an alien culture. I want enough gospel to make my children well behave, but not so much that I feel my ambitions redirected or my giving too enlarged. Is that what you want? Or do you want this? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. As we take communion this evening, we've got a chance to reaffirm, redirect, reestablish. Maybe for the first time, come and say, I'm not here yet, but I want to be, because this makes sense. And, And there's no better place to do that. In fact, there is no other place to do that than gazing at the cross of Christ. Because it's only as I look at the cross that I'll realise that this makes sense. It's only as I look at the cross that I'll be motivated to live this way. And indeed there'll be times when I won't want to live this and I need to look at the cross again. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Let's pray together.